are so grateful for this time, this place where we can gather and be with each other and can be with you. God, we do ask that you give us, Jesus, every day and especially now. Give us yourself. Give us the Messiah. Give us our Savior. Give us your Holy Spirit. As we read these words, God, give us life. Give us hope. Give us strength and courage to be your people in this world. God, I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts, God, I pray that they are acceptable to you. For you are our rock and you are our redeemer. And we love you so much. It's in the name of your Son and by the power of your Holy Spirit that we pray. Amen. All right. So we are going to pick up where we left off, which is in the book of Acts. I just, I flail a little bit, so I'm just going to move this back a bit. Um, Acts is a terrific story. It's the second part of the story that began in the Gospel of Luke. So it's the same author, and the same issues and the same concerns that that author had kind of carry over into this book of Acts. Acts is essentially the story of the early church. The, the disciples and the apostles who were with Jesus during his life, who witnessed his death, who were so confused by it, and then recognized and encountered and knew the living Christ, at the resurrected Christ, those same people Christ said to, okay, you now go and spread my message, spread my mission throughout the entire world. And so that is this story. That is what they did. And there, we've, we've read so many different things along the way. I don't want to, you know, bore you by going over them all again. But if you have a chance, read it from the beginning if you haven't yet. And um, the cool thing is, Ray is uh, our little sound guy back there. He is recording all of these lectures and um, lectures, you know, whatever they are. <laughs> Lessons, ramblings, you know, disjointed thoughts, all of those things. And uh, they're going to be available online. So if you miss one of these, you can always go online, and it's a po- it'll be a podcast on iTunes, and you can download them and kind of catch back up if you want to. Um, but anyway, if you don't, that's fine. Just go back and read Acts at some point from the beginning, because it's the story of the early church, and it talks about all the tension that the early church faced, um, how they had to deal with growing kind of internally, how they got pressure from the outside. Jews would persecute them because they didn't understand. The Jews thought they were corrupting the message of the Jewish um, people and, and what God had done to the nation of Israel and what God had promised. They thought these Jews thought the Christians were, you know, totally messing that up, and they, that like, caused a lot of tension. But then it started with Jews. You know, the Christian church, like, started from the Jewish um, faith. And then all of a sudden, these non-Jews started entering in. And so that caused a lot of tension because how do we have, you know, Jews living with non-Jews? And, you know, when all of our rules are different and all of our expectations are different. And, oh, they, like, eat things with blood in it, and that's disgusting. And so they, they struggled with how to develop as the church, as one body, one community of believers who believed that Jesus Christ was the Savior, the Messiah, the one that God had promised to the Israelite people who would save the world from their sins, from themselves, and reconcile them back to God. That is who the Christians believed that Jesus was. And everybody who believed that also joined in this Christian community. Um, And so we have the story of, like, great... um, 
apostles and teachers of the faith, folks who became the first martyrs who were killed um, because of what they believed, because they believed in Christ. And then we have folks that traveled around and started preaching and spreading the good news. So it wasn't just in Jerusalem any longer. It now spread into areas like cities kind of far and wide. And we've been following specifically this person named Paul, who really is a very famous early Christian missionary because we, we have from Paul our letters that he wrote to the different churches in the different towns where he established these communities. And so that is what makes up like the rest of the Bible pretty much. There's a couple of letters from some other folks, but essentially the rest of the Bible is made up of letters, most of them from the person Paul that we are reading about now in the book of Acts. And so the story of Paul is that he kind of started off as a Jew, but then had this encounter with the risen Lord, with the risen Christ, and he became a Christian, a follower of Christ, and he started preaching and teaching and going all sorts of crazy places. And so kind of halfway through the book of Acts, the story kind of totally switches from like the church in Jerusalem and what's happening there to following Paul and all of his journeys and all of his missions that he encountered. And it kind of talks about who he traveled with and what they did and where they went and all those things. So we're kind of right in the middle of one of these stories. We, um, we're in the middle of chapter 16. We started last, well, we didn't start last week, but we talked last week starting in chapter 16 about a very specific story, how uh, Paul and his partner Silas encounter a slave girl who can prophesy, you know, kind of tell the future, and she had owners that made a lot of money off of her, and they, like, saved her. They, like, cast this demon out of her that allowed her to do this, and then the owners got really, really pissed because all of a sudden their means of making a bunch of money went away. And so they threw them in jail kind of on false charges. And so they threw these guys in jail. And we kind of read the story, but I didn't have the chance to kind of go through and explain it all. So we'll pick right up um, at verse 25. I think that's where I left off last week. Verse 25, um, they're in prison. Okay, they've been beaten, flogged. That's important to remember. They've been beaten. They've been bound and chained. They've been put in like the deepest, darkest dungeon. They're in prison And we'll pick up in verse 25. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. Now suddenly there was an earthquake, so violent that the foundations of the prison were shaken, and immediately, immediately all of the doors were opened and everyone's chains were unfastened. Now when the jailer woke up, the person who uh, ran the jail woke up and saw that the prison doors were wide open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself since he supposed that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul shouted in a loud voice, Do not harm yourself. Look, we're all here. And the jailer then called for lights, and rushing in, he fell down, and trembling before Paul and Silas. And then he brought them outside and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they answered, Believe on the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. Then they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. And at the same hour of the night, he took them and washed their wounds. And then he and his entire family were baptized without delay. He brought them up into the house and set food before them. And he and his entire household rejoiced that he had become a believer in God. So just to break this down, you know, they're in prison kind of unrighteously. And I love the scene that it sets in verse 25. They're singing hymns of praise to God. And all the other prisoners are listening. And what's neat about that is 
they're expressing their faith no matter what their circumstances are. They're clearly not praising God for the fact that they're in prison. Like, woohoo, thanks God. Always wanted to be in prison. Really a big fan. No, they're just praising God because that's what they do, no matter what. And that is such a good reminder to me about how many things I go through that I'm maybe pissed about or upset about or uncomfortable about. It's such a good reminder in those moments that we can still be praising God. And maybe even that can be a comfort to me in those moments. And I think that's probably what happened to the other prisoners who were listening, right? They were just being quiet and listening to these two guys singing about how great God was. And I just can only imagine how comforting it was in their hearts to have those words sung about them. And we know that it made a big impact because when the earthquake happened, this violent, you know, earthquake, which is um, a very typical kind of sign of divine intervention, is an earthquake. Um, when this happened, um, the doors are opened and the shackles are broke free. Now, this can get really tricky. I mean, we like a year ago, we heard about a terrible earthquake that happened in Haiti. And a lot of people maybe have talked about it as divine intervention and, and, or divine retribution or judgment. And we hear about tsunamis and we hear about other da- disasters as God casting judgment or acti- actively involving God's self in the natural order of things. And so it's tricky when you read this here and you're like, well, maybe God does cause earthquakes. But it's so important to realize what happened here. This earthquake, what did it do? It shook the prison so that the doors were opened and the prisoners were released. So this is important to understand that, yes, it's talking about an earthquake here, but it's talking about really an act of God to save God's people. God is faithful in the midst of crisis. Because really the crisis is not the earthquake here. The crisis is that they're in prison. So don't, it's just tricky, and we can talk about it later if you want to, but let's just read it like that for now. So this prison, I mean, this earthquake happens, and the doors are wide open, and the jailer's about to kill himself. Now, did anybody, like, did that, like, surprise anyone? Like, what the heck? Why would he kill himself? Well, back in those days, you know, he drew out his sword, and you're thinking he's going to go, like, slay all the prisoners, but no, he, like, decides to kill himself. Because back in those days, the jailer was, like, responsible for everybody under his watch. So if you were in jail, if I was the jailer and you escaped, it was my life on the line. So it was a very close relationship that the jailer had to the prisoners. And there was no way that that jailer was going to believe that when all those doors were open and all those chains were unbound, that those prisoners had stayed in there. Because he knows what he would have done. He would have ran for his life. And so he knows that that means that he is doomed. He's going to be killed because all of his prisoners escaped under his watch. And yet, Paul cries out and says, don't kill yourself. Don't harm yourself. Not just Silas and I are still here. We are all still here. Those prisoners were listening to those songs. Those prisoners understood what was happening because they stuck around too. Gosh, that's powerful. Okay, so the jailer comes in and he sees it all and he's shocked and he's amazed and he takes Paul and Silas and he's like, all right, like I give up. What, what do I do to be saved? I mean, I... If this is the kind of thing that you guys were singing about, then I want in. And I I think it's really important here to recognize that there's, this is a question that I think this author wants all of us to think about. What do we got to do to be saved? Now, 
before you get all like high and mighty and say, oh no, well it's God that saves and we can't do anything to merit our own salvation, that's true. So this is really a question that presupposes God's saving action. God has already done the saving, but what do we have to do? What's our response? What does our response need to be? How do we get, become a part of this? I think that's a question we should all ask. What do we need to be doing to participate in God's saving work that God has already done in our lives? And so the guy's answer, Paul is like, well, you got to believe on Jesus Christ. Now, what's important also here to remember is that when you really understand what this author, and you've read Luke, and you've read all of Acts, and you get what this author is talking about, we know that that includes a lot more than just saying, I believe in Jesus Christ as my Lord. That is, it, this includes a lot more. This author thinks it's so important. It includes, um, it includes being a part of the community of faith. It includes repentance and obedience and um, sharing and, and kind of um, connecting to each other and other Christians. I mean, it includes so much more than just saying, I believe. But that's kind of the main summary here. You, you know, if you believe in Jesus, then that's kind of what it takes. And, you know, all these other things are part of it, of repentance and obedience and becoming integrated into the community of Christ. But if you believe in Jesus, then that kind of sums it up. And so his whole household, they tell him about the Lord. I love this. They tell him the word of the Lord. But you know they don't take a very long time, if you notice that. Because that very same hour, you know, he brings them to his home, and they're bap- and he, they're, his family's baptized, and he gives them food and water. And so for all those people who think that, like, telling the word of the Lord needs to be, like, you know, three hours long, you're like, actually, it can happen in a really short time. So there you go. That's why church doesn't need to be three hours long. Um, because at the same hour of the night, they perform all these acts of compassion, all these acts of, you know, kind of host and hostess, what they would do to care for someone. They wash their wounds, and they bring them food, and they celebrate, and they rejoice with them. It's just a really lovely scene of what our response can be when we recognize God's saving action in our lives. When we are assured of our salvation, acts of compassion follow. Acts of joy follow. Acts of generosity follow. This, this man, I love this story because it's such, it's so convicting, I think, about how we are called to respond. He's a model for all of us about what it means to really understand what God, you know, what God's salvation for us means. So let's continue to verse 35. When morning came, so that was all at night. When morning came, the magistrates, the people who beat Paul and Silas and sent them to jail, well, they sent the police saying, all right, let those men go now. And so the jailer reported the message to Paul saying, hey, the magistrate sent word to let you go. Therefore, come out now and go in peace. I love that. Like the jailer still had them in jail. <laughs> Even though he'd been baptized and they'd been like celebrating all night long, like, yay, we're saved. And he's like, okay, good, go back in your cell. Um, but he comes to them and he's like, all right, you get to go in peace. This is a good thing. And Paul replies, of course, sassily as always. They have been beaten. They have beaten us in public, um, uncondemned men who are, by the way, Roman citizens and have thrown us into prison. And now, and now they're going to come and discharge us in secret. Uh, No way. Certainly not. Let them come and take us out themselves. So sassy. The police reported these words to the magistrates and they were afraid when they heard that they were Roman citizens. So they came in, and they did apologize to them. And then they took them out, and they said, all right, but please leave our city. And so after leaving the prison, before leaving the city, they went to Lydia's house, who they had met earlier. And when they had seen and encouraged the brothers and sisters there, they then departed the city. Okay, 
So just to really explain, like I said, I love that the jailer like puts them back in prison. But then the magistrates, for whatever reason, kind of decide, all right, those guys weren't that bad. We beat them. We put them in prison overnight. That should serve as like a warning to them. Let's just get them out of our city. And then Paul, of course, is like, "Uh uh-uh. They don't even, they beat me, a Roman citizen? No, no. They don't get to just like usher us out quietly. They need to come and own up to what happened and apologize. You know, they need to face us in the light and not just act like we can slink out without being unnoticed. Um, And of course, when the magistrates realize that the Roman citizens, they become afraid because it's actually illegal to beat someone in Rome if they're a citizen. And so the fact that they were flogged kind of without really trial and reason as Roman citizens was a really big deal. This is the first place that we really hear of Paul being a Roman citizen. We have that kind of confirmed. And so that is why the magistrates got afraid, and that's why they did come and apologize, and then they did. We're like, okay, but now please will you leave our city? <laughs> um, they go back to the little to Lydia, which is the home, the host. She hosted them when they first got to the city, and um, what we recognize is that quickly her home became a gathering place for the community. Again, this is like, I mean, home churches w- was where it was at when the church started. That is how they did church, was um, wealthy or, or affluent people, high-level high people would open their homes and not only host missionaries, but they would then host the community that gathered around those missionaries. And that was absolutely the beginning of what we now know as the church. And it happened in people's homes, and this is an example. It became a true gathering place for the believers. And so they met and encouraged them there, and then they departed. All right, chapter 17. After Paul and Silas had passed through Amphiopolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in, as was his custom, And on three different Sabbath days, he argued with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that it was actually necessary for the Messiah to suffer and then to rise from the dead and saying, this is the Messiah, Jesus, whom I'm proclaiming to you. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks and, you know, not a few of the leading women. But the Jews became jealous And with the help of some uh, ruffians in the marketplaces, they formed a mob and set the city in an uproar. While they were searching for Paul and Silas to bring them out to the assembly, they attacked Jason's house. And when they could not find them there, they dragged Jason and some believers before the city authority, shouting, These people who have been turning the world upside down have come here also, and Jason has entertained them as guests. They are all acting contrary to the decrees of the emperor and saying that there is another king named Jesus. Not like another king who's also named Jesus, just another king who happens to be named Jesus. The people and the city officials were disturbed when they heard this. And after they had had taken bail from Jason and the others, they let them go. So what's happened here is that Paul and Silas are continuing their journey. Remember, they go from like place to place to place, preaching the good news, telling them about Jesus, and they always start in the synagogues. So they pass through these two towns that I really don't want to try to pronounce again, um, and we kind of assume that it's because there really are no Greek synagogues there, because when they get to Thessalonica, there is a Greek, a Greek synagogue, that's like an oxymoron, a Jewish synagogue. When they get to Thessalonica, there is a Jewish synagogue, and as is Paul's custom, which if you've read 
previously you've seen he does every single place he goes. He goes, starts for the synagogue, and that's where he starts preaching, and he starts teaching. And remember, not only is he like just telling the word of God from his own point of view, he's going to the scriptures, he's arguing with people. I mean, it takes him at least three Sabbaths. In fact, if you read Paul's letter to the Thessalonians, it seems like it takes a lot longer than three Sabbaths. But in this story, Luke, the author, is writing, and he talks at least three Sabbaths that he's arguing and talking and pointing to the Scripture and saying, okay, if you read this like this, you have to understand that this means this. And, and really what he's trying to say is God's promises have been fulfilled in Jesus. The, the Messiah, the Savior that God has promised us, the guy that you've been waiting for, has actually come. And you know, it's interesting this is where we, this might be just a little like side note here, but it, it kind of fits because people like always say, okay, Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ. And everybody's like, well, is Christ Jesus' last name? No. Christ is Messiah. Christ means Messiah. So really we're like Jesus Messiah. That's what we're saying when we say that. But really the way we should be thinking about it is that the Messiah is Christ. Not even, I mean, the Messiah is Jesus. Not even that Jesus is the Messiah because the question for these Jews, for every person here, especially the Jews, was not, who is this guy named Jesus? Oh, well, he's, he's the Messiah. The question that they're asking is, who is the Messiah? Who is the Christ? Because that's who they're looking for. That's who they're waiting for. And so really, what Paul is saying is, the Messiah, that you're, that the Messiah is Jesus. This guy is Jesus that I'm talking to you. So that's why I love how he says that. This is the Messiah, Jesus, whom I'm proclaiming to you. And that's how we need to be, you know, that's how we need to think about it, is we recognize Jesus as the human, as a human person who came. But as soon as he rose from the dead, he became the Messiah, the Savior. I mean, he was the Messiah even from the beginning. But do you get what I'm saying? Like, you got to take the totality of what Jesus did in his life to recognize him as the Messiah. The disciples, the people who hung out with him all the time, did not recognize him as the Savior, as the Messiah, until they had encountered the risen Christ. So it's so important to recognize that Jesus is, yes, who, who do we know? Is, who is this Jesus guy? Yes, he's the Messiah. But where is the Messiah? Who is the Messiah? That's this Jesus guy. That's the way, that's what this message is for the first people who are hearing it. Because they, are, they know about the Messiah. They just want to know who that is. And so Paul is saying it's Jesus. Okay, so he persuades people. He persuades people. And, you know, a lot of the Jews, they join up. And, and a lot of the Greeks join up. And not a few leading women, which I kind of like how they phrase that. But, I mean, it's really important also to recognize that this author recognizes the value and the presence of women all throughout Jesus' ministry. While he was here, women were a part of it. And now in the early church, women play a big, big part in it. So that's important that he, he mentions that. And leading women, again, like Lydia, who maybe have homes, who maybe could host, and who maybe could lead house churches. Um, but the Jews became jealous. And we talked about last time we came across this word that it could literally also mean zealous, jealous or zealous. And you could say those are similar, but there's kind of some nice connotations with, with how they could be translated, with how the fact that it could be translated either way. Um, because if someone's zealous, they are on fire for what they know and what they believe. And we have to remember that the Jews were that. You know, they're not just petty people who just don't like Jesus and all the Christians. You know, they're like people who really care deeply about their faith and are on fire for the fact that these Christians are corrupting their faith. And so there's a, they're zealous about their faith. But there maybe could also be some jealousy. And I don't want to get into this, 
but I kind of want to mention it because it's really cool. In Romans, Paul talks about the Jews being jealous, and he talks about how that is actually the way that they can be saved. Because if they're moved to jealousy, then maybe they'll actually respond to the good news of Christ because they're moved that God would save the Gentiles, and they're jealous of God's saving work for the non-Jews, and so they would be then moved to participate. Anyway, that's in Romans, and that's totally different, but that kind of goes in here when you read, like, that the Jews are jealous. You kind of can't, can't help but make that connection. Anyway, jealous or zealous, they're really fired up, and so they, like, gather these ruffians <laughs> in the marketplace, and they go and, like, turn the city on its head. They, like, cause an uproar throughout the whole city. So what we see here is that Jews and Greeks both believed and were persuaded and joined in, and Jews and Greeks didn't believe and caused a lot of ruckus about it. So we kind of have this tension in these different groups. Um, and so they're searching for Paul and Silas, and they attack this guy named Jason's house. And we have never heard of Jason before, so that seems totally random. But what we can infer from this is that Jason was probably the host in that city. Jason was that home, just like Lydia's home was, where the believers would gather and where the missionaries would stay while they were preaching and teaching in the town. So they attack Jason's home, and they drag out all the people, the believers and Jason, and they bring him before the leaders, and they accuse them of all sorts of things. Now, this was because a host was held responsible for the behavior of his or her guests. So, I mean, it, like, takes, like, you know, what's the thing where, like, okay, if one of you tripped in the church, like, we'd be held liable? Like, liability <laughs> laws, okay? Don't trip in the church. I mean, it's fine if you do. We'll forgive you. I mean, it'll be fine. But, like, the idea is, like, liability laws are, like, way extreme in this situation. Like, whatever your guest does, you are responsible for. I mean, anything they do, you're responsible for, which is why they kind of, legally can drag Jason out and be like, these crazy people are causing an uproar in our city. And I love that. It's like they have turned our world on its head. Now, one, I love the fact that them and the ruffians are the one who's causing an uproar, you know, but they're accusing Paul and Silas and what they're preaching for doing this. But in some ways, you can kind of see, okay, Paul and Silas really are preaching a total change in the order and the structure of Roman society. Complete change. I mean, the, the way that Christianity was preached of one of God loves everyone, there is a lot of equality actually in Christianity that did not exist in the Roman culture of this day. It really did upset the Roman order. I mean, the fact that we are neither slaves or Jews or Greeks or free or men or women, we're all one in Christ, that was so radical. We get that from a letter that Paul wrote. So we know that Paul's like preaching those kind of things. That is so radical. And so this isn't just like an emotional outburst that these people are having. Like, oh, they turned our world upside down. I mean, this is like, um, excuse me, they have threatened the order of our entire society, and we don't know what to do about this, and this is like really throwing us off. I mean, that's kind of a big deal. And the interesting thing is this author has been, in the past, so careful to show that Christianity is not a crazy radical movement that's here to overthrow Rome. Or is it? I mean, I think as modern readers, we can kind of wonder, okay, what is the challenge of Christianity? How much does it challenge the order of our society? You know, how much do we resist the, be, our order, our structure, what we kind of know and where we've placed people and how we sort people, categorize people? How much does it turn that on its head? How much do we like that? I mean, I heard somebody say, like, if you're not convicted by Christianity, challenged, then you're not hearing the right Christianity. I mean, so there's something to be said for the fact that this is a very challenging message. This message of grace and unconditional love 
and freedom from sin and humility. I mean, equality in a way that they have never experienced and that, quite honestly, we don't really experience very often. That's a really radical message. As much as this author doesn't want it to seem like it's that crazy, I think we have to ask the question of, or is it? Um, And so they complain that they've been acting contrary to the decrees of the emperor and that they're saying there's this another king, and his name is Jesus. Now, actually, they weren't doing anything contrary to the decrees of the emperor, so that's, like, totally made up. And they are saying there's this other king named Jesus. I mean, if you remember the way they referred to Jesus, especially the sign that they would, they, the nails on the cross, I mean, king of the Jews, I mean, there is this sense of that's how they could understand the role that Jesus was playing in their lives. And so that really ma- freaks people out. Because, like I said, it disrupted that whole order, the whole way that they understood their society and their hierarchy and everything. And so they were disturbed when they heard these things. But after, you know, Jason and the believers had paid bail, they were like, okay, I guess we can go. And so we're going to end there. But I, I encourage you guys to, to think about this. You know, ponder that this, this week. And especially now that we're in the season of Lent, which is a, a season of preparation as we enter into the Holy Week leading up to Easter where Jesus does die on the cross and then is resurrected. I mean, as we're in this season of preparation, by reflecting on who Jesus was and what Jesus did for us, the challenge that Jesus made, the way that Jesus really did shake up the world, I think that we let that sink in and we let that humble us. And then we respond with open hearts to what God is maybe calling us to do specifically. So I hope you guys think about that this week. Let's pray. God, we are so grateful for everything that you have done in our lives. God, we pray that every time we read your word, that we hear it spoken, that we are challenged and convicted. God, we do pray that you mess our worlds up a little bit, that you shake things up, that you remind us that You do not call us to a faith of comfort, but a faith of action and of radical love and of crazy grace. God, we recognize what you've done for us, and we cannot help but be humbled by it. God, help us to do what we can to share this good news with others. It's by the name of your Son that we pray by the power of your Holy Spirit that is truly in each of our lives.